0: Everyone. I'm just gonna pray, pray again. Father, your your word is living and active and sharper um, than a double-edged sword. I pray now that um, it would penetrate our hearts and and encourage us. I pray that we would be changed by your word. I pray that that you would fill me with love for your people and joy to be speaking about your word. And I pray that you would fill all of us with um, hearts that are becoming more and more humble to accept Obey your word. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. We can open up to Luke chapter 12 as we continue on in the series on the book of Luke. Thank you also for all of your support and prayers. Standing up here, um, speaking about God's word is a um, is a, a very nerve wracking thing in, in a lot of ways. Um, I I'm thankful that in the passage we're going to be looking at today, we have the promise that when we stand before synagogues and rulers and authority, the Holy Spirit will teach us what to say, and I. Uh, I don't feel like you guys are a synagogue or a ruler or authority, but I'm thankful for the promise nonetheless. So, um, thank you. Let's read our passage. Luke chapter 12, verses 1 to 12. In the meantime, when so many thousands of the people had gathered together that they were trampling one another, he began to say to his disciples first, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he is killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are are of more value than many sparrows. And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man also will acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And when when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say." have have you ever thought about what actually makes the Pharisees different from the disciples? This this is one of the questions that has kept coming back to to my mind as I've studied today's passage, because the previous passage is a long list of woes uh, against the Pharisees, where Jesus um, is speaking to the Pharisees and the lawyers and... um, just really laying into them. And these are the Jews that, who are recognized uh, for their expertise in knowing and obeying the law. So, and now Luke 12 begins with Jesus teaching his disciples. So it comes right on the heels of this interaction with the Pharisees. And actually, I think Jesus is training his disciples here on how to be a disciple. In fact, it seems that Jesus' harsh assessment of the Pharisees and the lawyers is the reason why he now turns to his disciples to train them. So what is the key difference between the Pharisees and the lawyers and someone who is Jesus' disciple? Why do the Pharisees get it so wrong? How is Jesus' training so unlike what the Pharisees and the lawyers are doing? Now, there's a, there's a lot of options that we uh, could consider, and probably a lot of them have, diff- have rings of truth to them. And maybe it's the fact that the Pharisees are just too concerned about the rules. This is probably a popular critique of the Pharisees. They're just so into keeping the law, keeping every last commandment, that they forget the one who, who gave the commandments. Now, to borrow the theme from the recent girls' retreat, which I was not on, but I still know about. Maybe the Pharisees are all about the rules, and the disciples are all about freedom. Is that the key difference between the Pharisees and the disciples? I'm not sure that that this adequately explains the difference, since Jesus seems to critique the Pharisees for not following some pretty key rules, right? Right? Maybe they keep certain rules, but they neglect the important ones. Plus, in our passage today, Jesus gives his disciples plenty of commandments, plenty of things that this is what you should do if you're to be my disciple. Plenty of things to obey. So what is the difference then? What how do we understand the Pharisees and the lawyers on one hand, the disciples on the other? Well, I think at the heart of the difference between the Pharisees and true disciples is that they really have different masters. The Pharisees do not really have God as their master, even though they would say that they do. Otherwise, they would not have neglected justice and love. Otherwise, they would have cleansed the inside of the cup and dish, which God sees, and not just the outside, otherwise they would not have killed the prophets who speak from god but they would have accepted jesus and so as we now turn to chapter 12 i think that we'll find that the key to discipleship training is learning to follow the right master how do we follow how do we follow the right master with the with the pharisees from chapter 11 in mind and in love for his disciples Jesus is going to both warn his followers against some of the false masters. He's going to tell them to whom we should give allegiance. And he's going to explain what it looks like for the triune God to really be our master. This, this discipleship training agenda is going to include obeying, it's going to include fearing, and it's going to include speaking. So, let's look, let's look at how Luke 12 starts again. Look at verse 1 with me. In the meantime, when so many thousands of people had gathered together that they were trampling one another, he began to say to his disciples, First, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Now, this is, I think this is, this is really amazing. Um, Jesus has been speaking some really hard truths, right? If you look back at the last chapter, he's, he's just called the crowds an evil generation for seeking a sign, and he's just, he's just really hammered the, the well-respected Pharisees and lawyers. But still, many thousands of people had gathered to see and hear Jesus. So many that they're trampling one another, okay? Do you have that picture in your mind? So many crowding to hear what Jesus is going to say next, even after he said all these hard things, that they're trampling over each other, trying to get closer. Now, this is what every leader, every uh, cause, every movement longs for, but only few achieve, right? We look at churches who achieve this with awe and invite their pastors to speak at conferences. This this sounds like a, a problem that even we at New Life wouldn't mind having a little bit more of, right? Thousands of people trampling each other to hear the good news. But Jesus does something unexpected, doesn't he? At least it's unexpected to me. He doesn't address the crowd, but he turns to speak to his disciples. And he doesn't give them a pep talk. He doesn't give them a game plan or a strategy for how to reel this crowd in. He doesn't divide the disciples and send them into the crowd to assess their needs and set up programs or set up small groups. He turns to his disciples and he gives them a warning. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Now, first of all, what is he saying? Well, leaven is an image um, that Scripture uses a couple times. It it was the yeast of the ancient world um, before you could buy uh, the packets of yeast and shop-right. It was a it was a piece of uh, an old piece of dough that was left to ferment and then was mixed in with with new dough and the the leaven would would spread throughout the whole dough and cause the dough to rise. Now the Pharisees, as as we know, they're lying in wait for Jesus. They're after him. They want to catch him in some sin or inconsistency. They want him dead. But Jesus isn't saying isn't saying, watch out for the Pharisees, be careful of them, escape from them. He's, he's telling them to watch out for the leaven of the Pharisees, and in Luke, Jesus defines for us what that is. It's hypocrisy. He's telling us to watch out for hypocrisy. He's saying, be careful not to fall into the same temptation that the Pharisees have, the temptation to appear perfect on the outside, but neglect real godliness. The image that Jesus has used before is that the Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and dish, but inside are full of greed and wickedness. Now secondly, why does Jesus say this now? Why, when this whole crowd has gathered, ready to hear and see him, does Jesus give a warning against hypocrisy? I think there might be, I think there might be a few answers. One is that the temptation towards hypocrisy is, is most potent in a crowd most potent when there's so many people uh, wanting to see and hear you we care about what people think of us don't we we fear people's disapproval their rejection we fear that they'll be angry with us we want we want the crowd to be to be with us because it legitimates our work our ministry and our message and that it, there isn't That isn't necessarily sin. Perhaps decreasing numbers should cause us to reevaluate. Perhaps increasing numbers is a sign of God's work. But it's a small step from eyes that are fixed on a crowd to turn to hypocrisy. To putting up the front that we think the crowd will like, regardless of, of what we say or do in private. Another reason why Jesus might turn to his disciples and speak instead of to the crowd might also be that Jesus really does love the crowd. Jesus is not a cynic who just says, well, this crowd probably isn't really genuine and they'll crucify me later, so I'm just going to devote all my attention to these 12 guys. Jesus gives a parable later in Luke 12 that I think sheds some light on what he's doing here. He will later compare his disciples to, to managers that, that the master sets over his household to care for the master's servants while he's away. Now, Jesus knows he will soon return to his father and that his disciples will be responsible and accountable for caring for God's people who are among this crowd. While Jesus, When Jesus sees this crowd, I think his comp- compassion for them is stirred and it drives a need for a management training session his disciples So let me briefly briefly pause and put a plug in to, to those who are who are managers here this morning our elders just returned from a retreat right a type of management training management reorientation if you will there are deacons here ministry leaders both within the church and without parents, supervisors, teachers, Many new lifers in fact are, are, are managers um, in some way. So let me urge you to consider carefully what Jesus says to his disciples in all of Luke in all of Luke 12, not just the, our passage today. And to those who would not really consider yourself managers, I'd still encourage you to listen because as we'll find out, the foundation of manager training is actually simply just discipleship training. Jesus doesn't start with a game plan for reaching, winning, and shepherding this crowd, does he? He starts with his disciples and their hearts. He starts with what it looks like to be a disciple. Don't be hypocrites. Make sure the inside of your life matches the outside of your life. Remember, as I said earlier, I think the key to discipleship training is following the right master. That's where it starts follow the crowd as your master, or you follow Jesus as your master. So, oh, so see, the Pharisees, they're, they're really just pretending to be rule keepers. They're not really rule keepers. The important thing for them is to look like they're doing a good job. They want people to see them and think, wow, they're, they're so holy, I could never be like that. They want the important spots in the synagogue. Whether they are fully obeying the law and pleasing God is is less important to them, though it might be a stated goal. And this is why the very visible laws are a priority. Is that like us? Are the visible laws a priority for us? see, the Pharisees get it wrong at the most fundamental level, at the level of who their master is. It's not the crowd, or it is the crowd, and not the Lord who they're serving. It is the approval of men, the best seat in the synagogue, that motivates their obedience. Obedience, in quotes. Not their love for God. When this is the case, God's rules, his commandments given for his glory and our good simply become a tool for our own glory. It makes sense that Jesus is so adamant about this. In what ways do, do the rules become tools for our own glory rather than for the glory of the Lord? So whether you're a manager or not, is Jesus your master? Is love for him what motivates your obedience? If you see hypocrisy in your heart, if you see a disconnect between what others see and what what you do, say, or think in secret, ask yourself, which master am I serving? Hypocrisy, like leaven, will permeate a whole person, and it will permeate a a church. It will permeate the body of Christ. And as Jesus graciously reminds us in the next two verses, hypocrisy isn't worth it. It won't work anyway. God is in the business of making hidden things known. Much of the story of the kingdom of God being preached in the Gospels is a story of something hidden being made known. Hidden hypocrisy will not stay hidden. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark will be heard in the light. What you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops, and if if it doesn't happen even in this life, there's there's a a promise that um, that when God comes, He comes as a judge to reveal what has what is hidden. Why why does God do that? he's concerned about hidden things being brought to light. So hypocrisy, it doesn't work. Think about, um, about every month that it, it seems like some manager in our society, whether a politician or a pastor or a celebrity, is being exposed for some hidden scandal. Hypocrisy doesn't work. But even more than that, even more than the fact that it doesn't work, it reveals a departure from the path of discipleship, from being primarily concerned with the glory of our true master and love for our true master. So, what does Jesus tell his disciples in this in, next in this management or discipleship training session? Look at verses 4 and 5. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he is killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. You might say that Jesus moves from one type of fear of man to another. While hypocrisy is a a wrong way of trying to get something from men, approval or honor or respect, Jesus is now talking about a fear of what man might do to you. When I submitted my sermon outline, I, I called this section, Remember Who Your Master Is? That really kind of became the subject of the whole sermon. So maybe this section, maybe this, this section could be called something like fear the right master. Now Jesus' logic is simple enough. Why would we fear a crowd that can only kill our body when there is one who can both kill and cast into hell? But convincing ourselves to follow Jesus' logic is not as as simple. The fact that someone could kill us is pretty terrifying, isn't it? Uh, Most of us probably don't live with this daily fear. But I also know that some of you have. Some of you have had people close to you who have been killed. Some of you have narrowly escaped death yourselves. Some of you... Might live under constant fear of someone in your life who had or has power to end your life. I don't. I don't. I'm not naive enough to think that that might not be a possibility for people in this room. If you've if you've served in the in the military or have a loved one who did, or maybe even on the police force, you also might be able to understand this fear a little more. Now, Jesus is not saying, "Don't try to get out of harm's way." Don't try to get out of an abusive situation. He's not saying, don't be wise about what streets to avoid at night. He's saying that this life is is not all there is for us. And because this life is not the end, it is not worth exchanging masters for the sake of preserving this life. Making humans our master, who we obey at all costs because we don't want to die, is not worth it. This This is how important having the right master is. But Jesus is not just telling us not to fear these other master wannabes, right? He's telling us to fear the right master. He says, I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he is killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Now, who is the one who has authority to cast into hell? There is only one who has this kind of authority. Satan doesn't have the authority to cast cast us into hell. Praise the Lord. Satan would love for us all to be in hell because that's where he's headed. But he has no authority to send any of us there. Only God has that kind of authority. And he's the one we are to fear. But what does it mean to fear God? What does it mean to fear God in this way? Do we need to be afraid that at any moment God might turn on us and send us to hell? No, not at all. That's how we would fear that's how we would fear men who could kill us, but that's not how we fear God. Listen to what God says in Isaiah, similar to what Jesus says. This is in Isaiah chapter eight. For the Lord spoke thus to me with, with his strong hand upon me, and warned me not to walk in the way of this people. God is talking to Isaiah here, saying, Do not call conspiracy all this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear, and let him be your dread. And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel. So when we fear God, we are to honor him as holy. It's hard, to, it's hard to illustrate this, because there's not ready examples. But, and I welcome any metaphors any of you might have afterwards. But perhaps we can illustrate this kind of fear by looking at our fathers and see a difference. So the first kind of fear is when your father would be angry about something and you would never know when he would turn on you. Verbally or physically, you might try to hide, you might try to be on your best behavior, you might just try to get out of the way until he cooled down. That's the first kind of fear, the kind of fear that we have of of men who might kill us. But the the second kind of fear, the way that we are to fear God, if you think back on your father's was a fear that kept you in a moment of your own frustration from getting the last word in, in an argument or kept you from throwing that punch at your brother that you wanted to or kept you from committing the crime that you probably could have gotten away with. It was a fear that took your dad seriously enough to know that he would be justly angry and that he would hold you accountable he would not let you get away with it. This is closer, maybe, to honoring God as holy, though not perfect. When we take, we are to take God seriously, more seriously than our fathers, because he has much more authority, and because he is perfectly just. We are to honor him as holy. This same God, as Isaiah says, either becomes a sanctuary or a rock of stumbling, right? Opposite things. Those who fear him find safety in him. He's a sanctuary. But those who choose to ignore him will find themselves tripping up, unable to escape him, and being broken, ultimately. Now, Jesus' Jesus' point here to his disciples is the same as God's point to Isaiah. We shouldn't fear men, or what men typically fear, because there is someone greater to fear. Because God is someone greater to fear, we shouldn't fear men who can just kill the body. But both Luke 12 and Isaiah 8 go go farther, too. When we fear the Lord, when we honor him as holy, we don't need to fear what men typically fear. Look at verses 6 and 7. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. So follow the argument here. God is the master and the father who is most worthy of our fear because of his supreme authority and his holiness. But since this master and this father places such a tremendous value on you, you don't need to fear anything else. For those of you in the Hebrews Sunday School class, Jesus uses a familiar type of argument to to what Hebrews uses to explain this to us. He starts with sparr- with sparrows, the, the cheapest meal in the marketplace, and reminds us that God doesn't forget a single one of the sparrows. And he starts with the hair, one of the most insignificant and, and non-functional parts of the body, and tells us that God cares to notice each one. So, so because... Because his people, his children, his disciples, are of much more value than sparrows or hares, he will not forget us. And if the one with supreme authority is the one who does not forget us, then no matter what others could do to us or even what they may do to us, we don't need to fear. He's not forgotten us. He's got us. So, so far, Jesus has trained his disciples to be the same on the inside as they are on the outside because God will make every hidden thing known. He's also trained them not to fear men because there is a more important person to fear and, the, and that person will not forget us. In both cases, it is important that it is the triune God who is our master, the one we are to obey, the one we are to fear, not other people. Now Jesus is going to zero in on a third area that he's that he's always been very that's always been very important to him, and that's speaking. Look at verses eight through ten. And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man, will also acknowledge him before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Now, this is a really hard passage. And uh, Matt Franchetti asked me to switch passages with him before he told me what was in it. (laughs) But it's hard because Jesus makes it seem so simple and straightforward, and yet it doesn't seem very straightforward and simple to us, right? I think that's why it's hard. Jesus says that if we acknowledge or confess him, if we speak in a way that connects ourselves to him, he will do the same for us. But if we deny or disown him, if we speak in a way that, that disconnects us from him, he will do the same for us. I think the reference to the angels of God gives us a hint to at what time Jesus will acknowledge or deny us. When he returns in the glory of his Father with his angels, he sits on his glorious throne, he gathers the nations, he separates the sheep from the goats, this is the time that Jesus is talking about. The angels are witnesses at the final judgment. So this is a really serious time for Jesus to either connect himself to us or disconnect himself from us, right? So before we try to, to nuance this and, and try to make understand how it fits with some other passages, let's appreciate how black and white this is. Every human being has two options with their lives, right? To have a life that acknowledges Jesus or a life that denies him. There is no middle ground. Now, we do not live in a society where the primary pressure is to deny Christ or face death. If we ever face that, may God give us the strength to not fear. But our society's primary pressure right now is to to argue that there is a middle ground. Right? When I uh, was in high school um, I would uh, sometimes read my Bible on on the bus ride to school um, and I would often have people ask me well oh, what are you doing and I I wasn't bold enough usually to kind of share much more than well I'm, I'm reading my Bible and and I've I never once had anyone persecute me I never once had anyone say, well, that's stupid, or why would you do that, or, you know, no one even asked me to explain myself, which, thankfully for me at the time, um, most people just said, oh, like, that's cool. That's neat. You know, that's good for you. Most people in our culture want to live in a middle ground. They don't see themselves as denying Christ, Jesus was a good guy. He gives some good truths to live by. It's fine for people to believe in him. His followers are often nice people. who do a lot of good for society. It's very tempting to want there to be middle ground as well, right? Especially as we get to know friends and teachers and coworkers or family members who really are very kind and generous and smart and thoughtful and caring people but who don't believe in Jesus. We, we want there to be a middle ground for them. We don't want to see things black and white. This is probably an especially strong temptation when we transition from a setting where we're surrounded by mostly Christians to a setting where we're surrounded by mostly non-Christians. Going from a Christian school to a public high school, or going from being homeschooled to a secular university, or going from going from seminary or a Christian college into a secular workplace. But the truth is, from Luke 12, that there is no middle ground. Either we acknowledge with our mouths and our lives that Jesus is our master, or that something or someone else is. Again, this acknowledgement or denying is not done in secret. It's done, done before men again. The previous questions of who we fear and who we want to please still impact whether we acknowledge or deny Jesus. This is not referring to a single incident either. I want you to understand that, because that's probably what leads to the most uh, uh, wrong understanding of this passage. It's referring to a pattern of your life. In Revelation chapter 3, Jesus tells us something similar. He tells us whose names he will confess before the Father and his angels. And it's the one who conquers and perseveres. It's the one who remembers what they've received and heard, who keeps it, who repents. It's not—it's not someone. It's not referring to just one incident in life. It's referring to a whole life. Now, this is encouraging because we don't need to fear Jesus denying us because of that time on the bus when I should have spoken up but I was not courageous enough to. But it's challenging to us because we can't simply rely on the fact that that one time when we were little and we had an interview with the elders for church membership and they asked us if we're Christian and we said yes. We can't simply rely on that as acknowledging Jesus before men. What's the pattern of your life? What do you want the pattern of your life to be? Now is the time to decide. There is no middle ground. It is in this context that I think we can understand the next verse, what it means to blaspheme the Holy Spirit, or what is sometimes called the unforgivable sin. Now, the name the unforgivable sin is a deceptive name, I think, because it seems it makes it seem like, a single, like it's a single event that puts us outside of the grace of God, no matter how much we want to be forgiven. But the consistent tes- testimony of Scripture is that these types of warnings in Scripture are not being given, or they're... They're being about, oh, the types of warnings in Scripture about us not being forgiven is referring to those who consistently and permanently reject the source of forgiveness, the only one who can forgive. It's referring to those who are so blind that they diligently search the Scriptures, but they refuse to come to Jesus to have life. It's those who hear the truth and deliberately keep on sinning. It's it's those who see Jesus' miracles, which are the Holy Spirit's way of saying, look, look, the king is here, the king is here, and, and saying, that's just the work of Satan. It's those who permanently and consistently reject the only source of forgiveness. This warning about blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is that there is no forgiveness for those who persist in rejecting the only one who can forgive. For those of you, again, in the Hebrew Sunday School class, it's the same message as Hebrews. Jesus is the only final and the only true sacrifice for sin. If we reject him, there's no other options. There's not another sacrifice for sins coming along. There's not another person who's going to come along to forgive. If we reject him, there are no other options. So, so. So let me encourage you. You don't have to ask yourself, oh boy, did I did I blaspheme the Holy Spirit? Did I ever commit this, this sin that's unforgivable? That's not the right question. You don't have to ask yourself that question. But the question might be, will I continue to resist and deny the Master who forgives and gives life? Will I continue to, in effect, say that the Holy Spirit doesn't really know what he's talking about when he says, this is the king, this is the king. That's more the question. What are you doing now? Will you turn to the one source of forgiveness? Or will you say, nah, I'll just look for something else. Be warned, there are no other options for forgiveness of sins. There are no other options for life. And as before, Jesus doesn't just warn about speaking. He doesn't just warn, which is really just awesome. He gives a promise, right? It's a pretty simple promise, but it's really profound. Look at verses 11 to 12. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about what, how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought, ought to say. When you're brought before men, when you're tempted to deny your master, don't worry. The Holy Spirit who pointed people to Jesus through his miracles is the same Holy Spirit who will teach you what to say. The same Holy Spirit who said, look, the king is here, is going to be with you speaking in those moments. This is exactly, if you remember, what God did for Moses, right? He said, I will be with your mouth. Kind of a funny phrase. I'll be with your mouth. I will teach you what to say to Pharaoh. The disciples would have understood this connection. I think it would have been a great encouragement to them. So to summarize, Jesus has been training his disciples for what it means to be a faithful manager in his household. So he has been training them for what is most important for that, right? Their discipleship. And the key to discipleship, which Jesus has been hammering home again and again, is that he and only him is to be their master. This means living in integrity rather than hypocrisy. It means fearing God and not man. It means acknowledging Christ and not denying him. But there's a problem, isn't there? We are hypocrites. We come to church. We go to elders' retreats. We teach Sunday school, we stand up to preach, and there's much hidden in our hearts. Some that we're aware of, some that we're not. We regularly fear men more than we fear God. We deny Jesus before men, just like the disciples fled and denied Jesus when he was arrested, just like Paul blasphemed God while he persecuted the church. We deny Jesus whenever we substitute him for some other master and become disciples of someone or something else. Ourselves, our greed, our lust, our intellect, our popularity, or glory. I substitute him for my to-do list all the time. This is what fills my thoughts more than his praise, and it demands my allegiance more than seeking his guidance and his help. My wife knows that. We construct a false god as our master. We may call him Jesus, but it really is more like our genie than our master to give us what we want when we want it in repayment payment for what we do for it. That's a false master, despite what name we give it. See, the problem is that mankind is not masterless. Jesus does not enter a neutral world of people who are waiting to choose a master and gives them a compelling argument for why they should choose him. Every human being since Adam was born with a master, a tyrant master, and they are slaves to that master. The bigger problem is that this master does not hold us against our will. We follow him willingly. Jesus told the Pharisees, you belong to your father, the devil, and you Your will is to carry out your Father's desires. They're not masterless. But Jesus doesn't come to just tell us how to be his disciples. He doesn't just come to say, Hey, I should really be your master. Here's what it looks like. Get with the program. Jesus comes... To call us to be his disciples. And Jesus' call has power. It has power to break us free from, from one master. From Satan's sin, self. And place us in Jesus' household. A household where we are forgiven. A household where his spirit teaches us what to say. A household where at the end of time Jesus stands before his father and his angels and acknowledges this one is with me. That's the kind of household that he brings us into. This is what differentiates disciples from the Pharisees, ultimately. They are brought into a new household. They're brought in. They're freed from one master to serve the true master. Transferring us from one household to another, from one kingdom to another, from one master to another, comes at an incredibly high cost. The one who has authority to cast into hell endures the essence of what hell is so that we can be forgiven of all our discipleship failures so that we do not need to fear being cast off. When we speak of what we might call the outline of the the gospel, scripture is clear that, that grace comes first and then works. God in Christ works to save us, And then those who have been set free from sin are set free to work out of love, fear, gratitude. Set free to be disciples. And the outline of the gospel doesn't stop here. It's not just grace works. It's really grace works grace. Because he doesn't free us and give us these new discipleship guidelines and leave us alone. This is why the end of our passage is so powerful. He is with us to keep us faithful as his disciples, to help us to repent, to teach us how to acknowledge him before men. We couldn't do it without him. He doesn't just warn and leave. He equips us for his instructions. And finally, I just want to point your attention to two words that you may have overlooked in this passage. I've purposely not mentioned them yet. Anyone guess? Look at verse 4. My friends. This is the only time in Matthew, Mark, and Luke that Jesus calls his disciples my friends. This is not simply a master-servant relationship. This is a friendship In John, Jesus tells his disciples, "You are. I do not no longer call you servants. I've called you, but I call you friends, because everything I've heard from my Father, I've made known to you. May we understand um, this friendship more and more. May it ground our discipleship. May we come to see the the one with all authority who." endured the essence of hell for us. That we may be brought into his household, that we may become his disciples, that we may may be equipped to follow him as disciples. Let's pray. Father, our, our hearts are very thirsty hearts that look for look for drink in all sorts of ways we know that it is only you who can give us living water and so as we as we leave today um, thinking more about what it means to be a disciple seeing ways that we we fail I pray that you would bring us anew to repentance. I pray that you would water our hearts and soften them. I pray that you would bear a fruit of humility, of integrity, of, of fearing and loving you. And may you keep our master, Jesus Christ, always before our, our eyes. Um, may May he fill our vision much more than the crowds, and may you teach us more of what it means that we are his friends. In Jesus' name I pray.